Welcome to Pipeline Conversations, a machine learning podcast by ZenML. This week, I spoke with Sabin Goyal and Hugo Baun Anderson from Outerbounds. They both work on leading, building, and helping people put models into production through Metaflow. And I'm sure some current users of ZenML will find this conversation interesting to hear how they think through the broader questions and engineering problems involved with MLOps. Above all, we spoke about the challenges involved in building a tool that handles the whole machine learning story, from collecting data to training models to deployment and back again. In many ways, it's great that there are lots of smart people thinking about this really hard problem. And even though it is by no means solved, conversations like this make me feel cautiously optimistic about the space. As always, all show notes are available at podcast.znml.io, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So uh, we started Out of Bounds, I believe roughly 14, 15 months back. And uh, to be honest, uh, I totally sort of like, you know, lucked into the space. So when I was starting my career 10 years ago, uh, I was working at this um, ad tech firm where I found myself in this spot where... Um, so, so I have a background uh, in computer science. I did my uh, undergrad in CS, and um, but I was always sort of like you know inter- uh, excited by more the mathematical aspects of computer science, uh, the mathematical logical aspects of computing. And uh, in my very first role, uh, I was kind of like this individual who knew a little bit of CS, knew a little bit of math, knew a little bit of data science. And then I was tasked with sort of like, you know, being this glue layer between our team of data scientists and our team of software engineers. And uh, we were essentially sort of like building ad tech solutions, how to sort of like target people with the right ad at the right time. And back then, there was no such role called as an ML engineer, so to speak. So so I was sort of like, you know, working in the era of big data and Hadoop and whatnot. Uh, So so that's, that's where I sort of like got started in this particular space. Uh, then after that uh, stint, I went to LinkedIn, building LinkedIn's uh, data mining infrastructure for their knowledge graph. And then uh, after that, I came to Netflix, uh, pretty much sort of like, you know, working on similar set of problems for sort of like more specifically focused on Netflix's own advertising efforts. And then uh, a little bit sort of like more deeper in the layer that, okay, how, how do we sort of like build this infrastructure, uh, the sort of like glue layer between data scientists and software engineers? Uh, so that organizations don't have to sort of like go out and search for sort of like more humans in the mix. How can we make a data scientist more autonomous, more full stack uh, in some sense? And then as sort of like, you know, part of that, then we started sort of like building tools. Um, we open sourced a few. And then uh, it seemed sort of like, you know, the right time for us to uh, sort of like just uh, leave Netflix and start building these tools uh, just for a much more bigger audience. Uh, because the appetite is clearly there. The world has significantly evolved from where we were, let's say, 10 years ago to where we are now. Hugo? Yeah, so my my trajectory is quite quite different. And it's I think it's fascinating how many different types of trajectories these days can end up in the in, in, in the same space, which is uh, machine learning as, as, as a broad tent, because it speaks to, I suppose, all the different types of skill sets um, that, that we need in, in, in this space and kind of the interdisciplinary nature of it. Um, my background is in basic science research. So I actually went to grad school in, in, in pure mathematics. Um, and I joke that, you know, 10 people read my thesis and three people understood it. So I wanted to uh, kind of get into more applied math, the applied sciences. So 
I started working in, um, I did a postdoc in cell biology and, and biophysics in Germany. There's um, a, a, an incredible Max Planck Institute for Cell Biology and Genetics in Dresden, where I was uh, for two and a half years. Um, and I worked with some of the most incredible scientists I'd ever met who did not have access to the tools um, and, and wisdom around using the tools um, that would help them do do science as well as, as possible, right? They were generating large amounts of um, biological data, a lot from like petabytes of data from microscopy and these types of things, right? Um, and this is when, this was over a decade ago when um, the IPython notebook had, had just emerged. So I was using this, trying to help them analyze their data, uh, design experiments, form hypotheses that we could test and then, then analyze. And it became clear to me um, at, at that point that there was something very significant lacking in what we could call the tooling layer and the wisdom layer around, around the tools. Um, then I moved to the US um, to do more research in, in New Haven, Connecticut. And at that point, um, I started running workshops, which I called something like um, you know, practical statistics or practical data science for, for, for scientists, where I even found you know, tenured professors at, at, at Yale who really didn't have access to the tools or statistical techniques that, that they really needed. And at that point, um, I realized that I was kind of equally good at doing basic research um, and, and doing education, what we now in this space called evangelism or developer uh, relations. But at that point, it became clear to me that something I, I, I could, could do um, and wanted to do more was help scientists do better science, um, wh whatever that means, right? And then I started working um, for what was then a small startup called DataCamp, doing um, things all, all, all across the board for building their curriculum, among other things. But at that point, it was an early stage startup, so um, I wore a lot of hats. Um, after that, um, listeners may know uh, Dask, which is um, distributed compute for the PyData stack. Um, I started working with Matt Rockland, who developed Dask um, at a company called Coiled, uh, where we were productizing Dask and distributed compute for for, for PyData. Um, the reason I decided to move in that direction was this was essentially, we're still going through it, but this was the beginning of, I suppose, an inflection point or phase transition where open source software served a lot of individual scientists and individual users, um, but it wasn't clear how organizations could adopt open source at, at large, right? And this is still a fundamental question. We're working on it, both Metaflow and Out of Bounds. Um, and so distributed compute, of course, is a fascinating challenge, particularly uh, for me in, in, in the PyData stack because Python is so close to my heart. But I really looked within and asked, what, what are the biggest challenges in the space um, and where can the biggest impact be made? Um, and operationalizing ML and productionizing ML for me was the most attractive because um, of the amount of impact that 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 we all can can have there and the amount of kind of rich interesting challenges and interesting people in the space so i started chatting with people kind of thinking more about the uh productionized M ml space um and was introduced to uh ville and, and savin who'd recently uh left le left netflix to um to form out of bounds and uh one thing led to another i was and we may get to this. I was, I was very attracted to the open source framework Metaflow for a number of reasons. Um, and both Ville and Savin were very explicit about how not only is evangelism and, and DevRel 
um, important, but it needs to be a foundational pillar for any open source framework. Um, and, and them recognizing that um, just spoke to me so, so deeply that I, I jumped in uh, six months ago um, and haven't looked back since. So speaking of those uh, those challenges, I'm really curious, like where you situate the the kind of the beating heart of the problem here, because you know it's not it's not that tools don't exist, um, it's not that there aren't people by now with a lot of experience delivering things um, at scale or in production and so on, to obviously varying levels of success or reliability and so on. But um, yeah, I'm curious. Like, what what's the core thing that you're you're working on trying to to solve at at, at Outer Bounds? Well, yeah. let me kind of set the scene, and I think then Savin can dig deeper into a few few things. I'll say a few high level things. But I suppose the first question is, what do we even mean by m- machine learning, right? Um, and I don't think it just comes down to fit and predict and and, and building um, specifically machine learning models. I think when we use the term, we're actually talking more generally about software that's powered by data in one form or another, right? Um, And so the question for me from my scientific research is what changes about software when we introduce the complexity of the real world into it via data? Um, And one thing that's incredibly important within this, one key aspect is that the skill sets of those involved change. We no longer have software engineers um, building software. We have scientists, which we now call data scientists, building software now. So the question is, people with very rich scientific backgrounds, scientific knowledge, who perhaps are very good at basic research and prototyping things, how can we enable them to rapidly iterate and move between prototype and production as as, as quickly as possible? And I think one key concern there is iteration speed. So having said all that, I think Savin um, can drill down into a few of those things and, and speak to more as well. You know, I mean, you know, totally on point. And I think it's also important to realize that tools by themselves are not enough. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, like there, there needs to be sort of like the strong wisdom layer, uh, the strong sort of like layer of established patterns uh, that guide people uh, in terms of like, okay, what, what tools are the best for a particular situation? How do you sort of like, you know, uh, build uh, a mental map of how to even go about achieving your objective? And I think that's that's sort of like, the big missing piece that I still sort of like see. Uh, there are a lot of tools that sort of like help data scientists where they are. Uh, you know, like let's say if you want to uh, just like pop open a notebook and do machine learning or data science within that, of course there are a lot of tools. But then depending on your definition of production, uh, you could be sort of like staring at uh, a lot of engineering work, a lot of engineering effort as well, which many times, you know, like you may not even be uh, trained for in the first place. Um, so I think that's that's really important. And, you know, like realizing that tools alone or education alone uh, can't really fill that gap. And it has to be sort of like uh, a good amalgamation of both. Where do you stand on the kind of, I guess, the possibly the, the non-technical struggles? Like, um, you know, like what you were just, just talking about, about how you have this mixture now of data scientists working together with software engineers. Like, is your is your hypothesis that the data scientist either will be or should be able to do it all themselves without the software engineers? Should the data scientist become a software engineer? What, yeah, what, what's the kind of the scope of um, that, yeah, non-technical bit? Yeah, I think... It, it definitely sort of like you know depends uh, 
both on organizations as well as the projects that are involved. Uh, of course, you would want to make sure that data scientists are able to do more and more by themselves without leaning on software engineers. And it can come in two flavors. One is sort of like, okay, do I expect sort of like my data scientists to be software engineers or do I just provide them better tooling um, so that they can sort of like, you know, just get more work done by themselves without sort of like wearing that software engineering hat. And I believe different organizations will sort of like, you know, take different postures. Um, of course, there, there could be sort of like, you know, uh, let's let's think about problems, you know, like that we saw regularly at Netflix and, you know, back uh, in the day at LinkedIn as well. There, there was usually sort of like a really high barrier in terms of introducing machine learning uh, into sort of like any specific product. And that barrier was that, okay, like not only do we need to sort of like have one or multiple data scientists involved in this project, we also need to figure out that, okay, what is kind of going to be the engineering support for that? And then of course, you know, like you can sort of like make a lot of progress if you just lower down that barrier where it's, a, it's easy to sort of like introduce ML into some specific problem. But then if you look at the other um, opposite end of the spectrum, you know, like let's say uh, recommendation systems uh, that Netflix was building, they were at a sufficiently advanced scale that for many of the A-B tests that Netflix would run, you would need dedicated engineering support as well. Uh, and then, of course, there were uh, projects in between as well, where we had individuals who had great software engineering skills as well, and they were able to sort of like take a project um, entirely into and on their shoulders. And that was also providing a great boost uh, to the bottom line of the company. So, so I think I don't think we can sort of like get to a point where there's one single established pattern that everybody will recommend. It's, it's always going to be a mix. What do you think? Yeah, Hugo? yeah, I, I totally agree, and 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 I think. You know, identifying different cultural concerns is in incredibly important. I think one aspect that we think about a lot is how data scientists work with machine learning engineers, right? And, and, and what that relationship looks like and that, how that relates to other parts of the org. So, I mean, I think one way to think about it is to go through maybe like a general pattern for what going from, you know, laptop or notebook to something production quality looks like, right? So, I have a data scientist, and this is kind of to introduce different layers of the stack, prototyping in a notebook and a CSV. Um, but then to go to production, they need to you know, integrate with a data warehouse or start to directly pull data from S3 every time a model is executed or train on streaming data, right? So this is a question, kind of there's a, there's a data layer in there which needs to be set up. And this isn't something that only a data scientist should should own or be responsible for. We need we need engineering resources there, and we need some form of um you know good information flow and, and, and cultural challenges solved for that to work right. But then on, then maybe you need to store your model and artifacts maybe every time you run it in a data warehouse or a lake. So then we see there's a data storage concern which you've identified interacting with model versioning, which is which is another question. Then maybe your data volume grows and we need a larger instance, so we burst to the cloud. What happens to libraries then, right? How do you migrate your state? So we have all types of state questions and dependency questions, right? Um, then maybe you need to train on GPUs, but not for all your steps, maybe only for training because GPUs are expensive, right? So then we kind of get this idea that, I suppose workflows are a useful abstraction here. So we have something which maybe we initially saw in the data engineering space being relevant in the data science space. And the question is, I suppose, who owns all of these different parts of, uh, 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 of the stack um, or who's responsible for them and how people relate between them. So I think if we want to identify 
different parts of the stack. I mean, we've identified a few from data to compute, orchestration, versioning, software architecture, model ops, feature engineering, model development, all of these. This is kind of going up the stack. Um, the way we think about it um, from you know, a lot of conversations we've had with data scientists and the work we've done is that data scientists are best served focusing on the top of the stack. So the model development, feature engineering, model ops, and then going down um, are things they care less about and that engineers care more about. So there's some sort of, um, it's, not, it's not binary, right? There's some sort of like double gradient of concerns and where people should be working. Um, and so what we're really excited about is helping organizations figure out what, what type of best practices to adopt when using um, frameworks such as Metaflow, which, um, which help data scientists focus on, on, on the top of the stack, essentially. Whenever I read or hear about this kind of this roles discussion that we're having right now, um, I think quite a lot about the kind of large numbers of people who are coming into this space right now, like new graduates and people who came from completely different domains who are just learning about machine learning. Obviously, there's all of these kind of high level frameworks which allow you to be dangerous quite quickly. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm interested, like, how or whether you see the kind of a role um, in what you do in terms of education, setting standards, um, uh, bringing together kind of consolidation in terms of how people do things, best practices. Um, yeah, is this something you think will kind of just emerge or are you actively trying to kind of shape that as well? I also have a few things. I think it's important. Um, for people developing tools and education around tools and workflows to set guardrails. But I think they need to be wide enough to give different types of organizations, different types of people um, and uh, pr professionals room to move. I, I, I mean, data scientists are the experts on what they, they need to do. You're right. There are a lot of top of funnel people coming in and we need education and, and frameworks for them to stop them um, being dangerous, but in the end, we don't want to be constraining people or limiting people, I suppose. Um, particularly in a space where, as Savin said very clearly, um, pattern recognition, there is not just one pattern. There is not just, there aren't just 10 patterns actually, right? This is kind of a, a wild world of, of, of different types of um, questions, concerns, and, and, and technologies that, that we're still figuring out what, what the space looks like, right? Um, and I suppose one thing I am excited about um, and maybe Seven can, can speak more to this, um, is thinking about how we can learn from, uh, how and what we can learn from larger companies such as, such as Netflix, right? And I think there is, and this is something I will push to Seven in a second, there is um, a myth that um, the things Netflix or Facebook or Apple does are so big and so at scale that um, and at such large global scale that they're not applicable to the rest of the world at, at all. And sure, maybe there are a handful of things these companies do that are like that, but there are a huge number of machine learning questions that have been solved by these companies that I think are applicable to the long tail. And what can we learn from, from, from these places as well? Yep, totally, totally um, agree on those points. Now, if, if you look at sort of like, you know, um, the fact that a lot of people are now sort of like, you know, looking at entering the space of data science and ML. Of course, you know, there's, there's a huge demand. We need more and more of data scientists to enter this profession. Now, 
like one of the hallmarks of success in this field, like what, what makes for a great data scientist in any organization is definitely sort of like an individual uh, who is great at data science, of course, but then they're also bringing in a lot of domain knowledge, a lot of business expertise as well. And at that point, would you really want your data scientist to be sort of like, you know, focused on building depth in your business use cases or sort of like, you know, building depth on the engineering side of the house? That's that's a big question that many organizations sort of like struggle with. And uh, ideally, these organizations shouldn't really be, uh, you know, in that sort of a dichotomy. And uh, that's, that's basically sort of like one of our... Uh, founding principle, so to speak. That's that's how the team got started um, at Netflix as well, where if, if you look at sort of like, you know, Netflix's use cases, uh, of course, there's the tentpole use case of uh, recommendations that everybody is sort of like, you know, very familiar with. But then there are like hundreds of other use cases, which are like, you know, small little tiny applications internally that do have a huge business impact. And we would call these sort of like business data science use cases, right? Like you can imagine, you know, even before, we get to recommend what content people need to watch. Somebody needs to recommend internally to the content execs what content they should be buying or licensing, right? Uh, if you are doing, let's say, out-of-home advertising, let's say, you know, there's a billboard that you see with sort of like an ad for uh, a Netflix special. Somebody needs to make a decision and it's a, it is a data-informed decision that, okay, which advertisement goes on that uh, just so that we can maximize awareness. Now, all of these problems are basically problems uh, rooted in data science and you'll find sort of like, you know, either a single data scientist or teams of sort of like, you know, two or three data scientists focused on solving these problems. And the data scale isn't really that immense. Of course, you know, like at that point, you want to be really creative with the limited set of data that you have uh, available to you. But then those problems are very much reflective of problems that any other organization uh, would also face at that particular moment. And then the important thing uh, at Netflix for us was that, okay, you know, like if we have a data scientist was really focused on increasing brand awareness of Netflix or figuring out like, okay, what is the right pricing structure uh, to recommend in different countries, then they indeed get the time uh, to build up that expertise, to build up that business context. And they shouldn't be sort of like, you know, struggling with that. Oh, you know, like, where is my data stored? And how do I deal with these Spark errors or Kubernetes issues uh, and whatnot, right? So, so that was basically sort of like our focus uh, that let's, let's just sort of like, you know, hire the very best people uh, who come with great data science background, give them the space to build up this business context and then provide them the tools and then get out of their way so that they can do their very best work. As and you're talking about, I just yeah, want to give a yep. specific example that kind of harks back to an earlier question about who should be doing what. And Seven mentioned Kubernetes, for, for example, right? Um, and so the question is, should a data scientist be configuring Kubernetes clusters? And I think we can all agree the answer is most likely no. I'm hedging slightly there. I could make a stronger statement, but let's hedge, right? So you'll have an engineer um, configure that and, and, and sort that out. But then we need to figure out how a data scientist can, can leverage that cluster, right? So something I initially found very attractive about Metaflow is when you write a flow, um, you have a decorator, which is at Kubernetes, where you can um, get access for a step in your flow to whatever is provisioned. And this, to me, I could be wrong, we could be wrong, but seems like the right abstraction layer um, for, for data scientists to interact with our Kubernetes clusters, for, for example. Similarly with AWS Batch and whatever else it, uh, it may be. But I suppose this speaks to how the cultural interactions 
um, best occur. And of course, there need to be conversations between data scientists, ML engineers, as to what type of clusters are necessary, how they work, and, and all of these types of things. But in the end, for a data scientist to be able to write a flow which they can run locally and prototype, and then merely attach a decorator to leverage compute somewhere else, um, I think that that is incredibly useful and allows this iteration loop between prototype and production to be as tight as possible. So it almost seems like you're um, maybe implicitly, and maybe I'm reading into that, there's kind of, um, going back to this kind of idea of best practices, there's kind of a, a response, maybe responsibility is too, too strong a word, but a, a, some kind of a, um, a need for, or, or it's, it's good if the framework um, nudges people in the right direction, has the, the API, API is designed in such a way that people take, broadly speaking, decisions which will benefit them versus harm them and the reproducibility of their model. I love yeah. that. And I've actually, I haven't thought of this in terms of nudge, but I, I like the idea of this being an, 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 a nudge of sorts. And I mean, the classic example of nudge, right, is if you have a cafeteria, what do you put at eye level at dessert? Do you put the fruit or do you put the cake, right? And as it happens, people will eat more of what's at eye level. So that's kind of them, us designing something that helps them do something that we've all kind of agreed is, is, is good for them. Um, so nudging them in that direction, but I, I suppose to make very clear, not decisions made by us in the abstract, but from years of conversations with data scientists and building tools for data scientists and building wisdom layers for data scientists, figuring out what the correct nudges are, I suppose. Yep. And then I think, you know, uh, while we are sort of like on the topic of analogies, like uh, yet another way of sort of like, you know, looking at this is when people look at adopting a tool, there's an immediate pain point that they are looking at solving. And there isn't sort of like any specific tool that will solve their pain point to the very hundred person. There may be some cases, but by and large, that's never, you know, entirely the case. And it's important to make sure that the framework is like a Lego block or like, you know, Lego blocks uh, of sorts so that people can sort of mold it in a manner that sort of like serves their end use case. But then more importantly, what I found is that all of these frameworks need to be able to deliver a dose of vitamin over a longer term. They need to sort of nudge people, guide people to, okay, what are the best practices? And that's where those guardrails also come in where, you know, of course, we have built these tools for now decades. And there are certain patterns that are easy for us to bake into these tools so that people don't have to struggle with those. And then there are certain things that, you know, are more kind of like best practices. And over a longer period of time, we'll see creative ways of how those best practices also get subjugated within many of these tools. And then there will be a newer set of best practices, more catering to the niche use case that people would be dealing with. So that's how I see the interplay between many of these tools, best practices, and these nudges versus some strong arm twisting as well at times to sort of like just instill good behavior. Um, what you were saying earlier about kind of, I guess, the um, repeated or, or, or kind of repeating use cases for for ML, particularly in some business cases, reminded me a lot of um, the the discussion around you know th this concept of the modern data stack. And I'm kind of curious, yeah, what your take is on on, on that, how machine learning fits into that as the kind of the next evolution, maybe. Um, we had Tristan Zions from the, on the, from Continual uh, on the podcast uh, a few months back, and that was really interesting. But it seems like, yeah, the transition into uh, 
yeah, machine learning workflows that are repeatable and handle these kinds of use cases isn't quite there yet. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, definitely, you know, like, uh, of course, you know, like, uh, the jury is still out there if the modern data stack is modern enough. Uh, but then when, when you look at sort of like, you know, the raw ingredients that any organization needs um, to sort of like, you know, uh, start on their machine learning journey, uh, it's, it's sort of like uh, pretty much in our face that you, you need some kind of data platform. You need a place where all your data is stored. You need to sort of like have a way of accessing that data. You need some place to sort of like run your compute, maybe sort of like it's a notebook in the cloud or notebook on your laptop or maybe a Kubernetes cluster uh, that allows you to sort of like, you know, either do some data processing or train your models or run model inferencing and whatnot. And then as Hugo sort of like also pointed out, much of the activities in the machine learning universe, they also sort of like look something like a workflow, you know, like people want to sort of like, you know, let's say, fetch my data from this data warehouse, process that data, generate some features, train a bunch of models, then do something with those models. And that's where there's sort of like uh, a natural place for workflow orchestrators in that modern machine learning stack uh, as well. And then as we sort of like, you know, think about other um, use cases, if you can think about sort of like, you know, model monitoring solutions uh, come in as well. Uh, and maybe sort of like, you know, there's a universe where sort of like feature stores fit in if let's say people want to, uh, share uh, much of the work that's happening as part of these uh, machine learning workflows. Uh, so by and large, of course, you know, we do see many tools that are focused on addressing uh, a sliver of the stack. Uh, of course, you know, you can go out and you can find sort of like, you know, tools focused on distributed uh, model training. You can find tools that are focused on experimentation management and whatnot. But then there, there is still sort of like a big problem uh, for data scientists that, okay, how do they move between these stacks? Uh, many of these layers are uh, very mature. Uh, some tools are sort of like, you know, still seeking uh, that maturity. But by and large, as an organization, once you're sort of like agreed that, okay, here are these sort of like set of tools or this stack, so to speak, uh, that we are going to deploy. How do you even move between the stack? How do we sort of like fill holes or fill gaps within the stack? That's that's a big missing element. And while there's a lot of conversation around the modern data stack, I think uh, we are still sort of like too early on the machine learning stack for even a conversation on like, okay, what are the right constituents of the stack as well? And I think uh, with, you know, like much of the work that folks at ZenML are doing as well as, you know, us as well, I think that's really important to start having that discussion uh, so that, you know, even if let's say there's no single canonical machine learning stack that emerges over the next couple of years, uh, there are at least some patterns that sort of like, you know, talk about that, okay, here here are certain things that are just mature enough for many organizations to sort of like just lift and shift and adopt uh, for their own use cases. Uh, what, what yeah, do you think, Hugo? I, I agree with all of that. And I'll build on that by saying, um, I mean, particularly for the data scientists out there who um, kind of are overwhelmed by the amount of tools I just want to say that it, that's not only reasonable, but it would be unreasonable to not be overwhelmed. I, I think all we need to do is look at like Matt Turk's data and AI landscape, um, which actually I love it. I, I think he's half trolling as, as well. I think there's some sort of like, you know, he's European, right? I think there's some sort of like deep, Euro, like continental European satire embedded in, in, in that. But the truth of the matter is that we have a huge number of tools. The, the space is, is, is highly fragmented in a lot of ways. Um, and we're trying to figure out um, what what works uh, for whom. And so when this happens, I actually, we can include this in, in, in the show notes if, if that works. But um, some time ago, I wrote 
an essay for O'Reilly Radar with Matt Rockland about how we we're putting more 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 money or like quote unquote money um, our our money on um, smaller interoperable tools as opposed to all in one platforms in the space at least in the medium term. And so what we're really thinking about at Metaflow and, and, and Out of Bounds is how can we develop tools that interoperate with what people use. So let's say let's say you work for an organization where you use um, weights and biases, for example, for experiment tracking, or maybe you use Neptune, or maybe you use Comet, right? So suddenly there are three different things you can use for um, data validation, you use great expectations, or actually maybe you use PyTest or w- whatever it is, right? We want to make sure that a tool like Metaflow um, can interoperate with, with with all of these and allow you to switch them in and out as, as easily as possible. And I think that that's really important to recognize in the space at the moment. This comes down once again to when we're talking about pattern recognition, um, that there are kind of emergent patterns, but what occurs within the, the patterns are so, so various that we do need tools and education that help service all these different use cases um, and all the kind of plethora of tools that people, people are using. One thing I really wanted to ask you both about, because uh, it's something I've been thinking uh, a lot about myself and, and also speaking with with our, our guests here on the podcast about is, um, is I guess, like nom- nominally or, or, or specifically about the kind of the role of annotation in all of this, but more broadly, um, when we start to think about kind of iterating over data rather than necessarily... Um, anything else or, or perhaps model optimization and so on how does how does annotation fit into all of this how does it annotation fit into um to metaflow how can people yeah it, should this be part of the the wider um ml life cycle or um is it kind of destined to continue to be this kind of black sheep uh, in terms of yeah it's, I, I don't necessarily uh, always come across like too many data scientists who actually work on the annotation themselves, but increasingly maybe that's that's more of a thing. I think uh, you know, definitely <laughs> the adage holds true: garbage in, garbage out. So uh, a lot more focus uh, needs to be on data labeling tools. I think it's important to recognize that data labeling has become a lot more easier and accessible over the last few years. Uh, that was definitely not the case five years back and it was really, really painful. Um, so, and I think uh, definitely, you know, like when, when you're looking at sort of like iterating or like thinking about like, you know, iterating in the concept of sort of like uh, in the context of data science, uh, it's, it's important to understand that, you know, at the end of the day, um, all of these activities, like, you know, whether it's sort of like getting access to label data sets, building a model, monitoring models and whatnot, these are all sort of like a means to an end. At the end of the day, uh, the goal of the organization is to deliver business value. Uh, the goal of all of these activities is to deliver that business value and to treat sort of like labeling problems as sort of like as a holistic component of end-to-end machine learning lifecycle. That's, that's really important. And uh, I mean, we, we did sort of like start investing a little bit uh, towards that and uh, during my time at Netflix and hopefully sort of like, you know, in the next um, few quarters, uh, you'll see sort of like, you know, more tools that will ship out, uh, which will make it just easy for people to interact and integrate with many of these data labeling tools and just sort of like, you know, have a much more finer degree of control in terms of like what data is sort of like finding its way into their model training, model inferencing pipelines. 
Yeah, you know? I totally agree. Oh, and I just want to build on that by saying I, I, I think labeling is in such a woeful state more generally. There are so many cool technologies which we could adopt um, and that people are working on that aren't hand labeling, for example. So even thinking about, you know, semi-supervised learning, weak supervision, transfer learning, active learning, synthetic data generation, right? All of these things, I think, get humans in the loop in a far more interesting and productive way um, than, than purely acts such as, such as hand labeling. And I, I'm glad you raised this because this actually speaks to a, a broader point um, I spoke with Peter Wang, who's at Anaconda, CEO of Anaconda right, recently, and he, he said to me, Hugo, I want people to start using the term cybernetics again, as opposed to AI, because what we're really trying to figure out is how to get humans in the loop with, with, with computation. Um, and I think this actually speaks more generally very nicely to what we mean by productionization, right? Um, I think production, like productionized ML, a lot of people use it to mean deploy to an endpoint, but... I think this is unnecessarily limited and limiting in, in a lot of ways. So it's really about how, like, the degrees of automation. Um, so two dimensions in productionization could be, you know, automation, but in terms of production and in terms of consumption. So is it deployed to an endpoint or consumed by a human to inform decisions? In terms of production, is it a bespoke one-off analysis does it happen locally? Does it use cloud resources? What is the bus factor? These, these types of things. So I think this question about how humans are involved in annotation more generally speaks to a question about how we get humans in the loop when we productionize models. Um, I do think this is something um, our head of data science said to me recently that I, I, I think probably both of you may find attractive and may think yourselves, the term productionization is so overloaded that um, perhaps something like operationalized is is a better term, right? And the example Savin gave before of, um, you know, figuring out what to put on billboards, that isn't deployed to an endpoint, right? Um, so is it productionized? I mean, maybe, depending what your definition of productionization is, we can definitely say it's operationalized, though, if it's informing human decision-making. And doing stuff on billboards, like I've never put stuff on billboards, but I presume it costs a lot of money. And actually, in terms of ROI for a company, it's highly impactful. So not only is it an operationalized model, not deployed to an endpoint, but it's one that's probably a very important decision to be made. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, certainly the, the, the annotation space is kind of booming in its own way, a little bit similar to, to what's going on in the MLOps world. And uh, yeah, that you could probably make an equally complex and disorienting diagram of all of the to annotation tools and all of the capabilities <laughs> that they exist. So there's probably a lot, yeah, uh, a lot more kind of churn and, and things to come mm -hmm. to come out of that uh, in the future. Yeah, I mean, in, in um, many ways, more options. That's that's a better yes. spot to be at than compared to, let's say, you know, five years ago when you had to spin up your own mechanical dirt campaign. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, another kind of black sheep in in a similar area, in fact, maybe um, following on from what you were talking about, um, Hugo, in terms of communicating and and kind of surfacing insights from from whatever you're doing as a data scientist is the area of documentation and I certainly would be remiss not to take the opportunity to ask about all of the things you're doing with MBDev2 and documentation and Docosaurus and so on. Um, yeah, I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about 
documentation in machine learning in in general like is this another thing like um um like annotation somehow uh, i know with metaflow you've got uh, dag cards or model cards you've got some kind of cards um uh yeah can you talk a little bit about documentation and and how to 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 do that correctly yeah i i will say in You've asked a, a bunch of really interesting questions in there, and I think we've already overloaded the term documentation, right, in terms of, you know, API documentation, um, framework documentation, um, education a, a, around um, tools and, and, and wisdom layers, and then documenting models, which, um, you know, Metaflow cards I, I find incredibly interesting and attractive for, for that in order to visualize um, all different aspects of, of your models. But the, the first thing I'll, I'll say is that I think... Documentation is one of those things that is almost invisible when it's good, um, but when it's bad, you you hate it. I mean, it 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 hurt it hurts, right? Like you're you're trying to build build something, and you're using docs. They're actually for a different version of the software that it doesn't explicitly tell you about. Suddenly, you have to watch a video on on, on YouTube. There's no code to copy and paste. A lot of the time, you you got to stack overflow. I mean. The advent of Stack Overflow, I think, in a lot of ways, is due to poor documentation, right? And the popularity of Stack Overflow, right? So I think that is very much worth being explicit about, that it can be huge, serious paper cuts when documentation is poor. Um, on the other side, I'm not crit criticizing anybody because building good documentation is one of the most the biggest challenges in software as far as far as I'm concerned. Um, on top of that, not only building it, but having tools that allow you to build documentation uh, super quickly. So that's why NB Dev 2 is, for example, and the stack that we're, we're using has been, been pretty exciting for us because it allows us to make sure we have reproducible documentation that runs through a bunch of essentially um, CI tests every, every time we build it to make sure it works that anytime someone reads it with whatever version of Metaflow they have, um, it, it, it will actually work. So that's that's something I'm, I'm very excited about. And you may have seen we published a, a blog post about the stack yesterday, which we'll, we, we can share in the show notes as well. Yeah, yeah I think there are sort of like, you know, three distinct classes of documentation that we are sort of like primarily concerned with at this point. So one is that, okay, how can sort of like a data scientist document their own work for their benefit or for their peers' benefit? And, you know, like when you look at sort of like features like Metaflow cards, they are sort of like step in that direction. I mean, the reality is that people should be spending a lot more time than they are today uh, documenting their work. And we want to lower that barrier as much as possible by providing automated tooling so that they, they don't really have to struggle with tools at that particular point. So, so the only struggle at that point would be sort of like, you know, putting code and thoughts on paper. Um, then the next kind of documentation, which sort of like, you know, harkens back to this productionization concept as well, is that how do you communicate uh, your work to your stakeholders? And uh, that, that could indeed be sort of like, you know, one dimension in which you are productionizing your model. Maybe you're writing a memo that talks about, you know, some analysis that was driven by some machine learning model and you're presenting it to your business stakeholders and you would want to make sure that uh, that's something uh, that's articulated well. Uh, you know, if let's say this is a model that trains frequently or that updates frequently, somehow your documentation can also sort of like, you know, update alongside with that with sort of like minimal effort from your side. 
So that's that's sort of, sort of like you know clearly important for us as well. And there are like many features that we are building in that particular space too. And then more importantly, uh, at the end of the day, uh, for us the role is not to sort of like you know just build this tool called Metaflow. Uh, we want to make sure that uh, we are sharing our knowledge uh, with the wider community as well. And internally as well, there is sort of like a huge focus for us to be able to sort of like share this information, share this knowledge as broadly and as easily as possible. So so we need to sort of like uh, be really good uh, at putting uh, our money where our mouth is and really sort of like investing in first-class documentation infrastructure so that it, it's just easy for us to scale out those efforts. So we're we're all building in this open source space, um, and we're kind of moving forward in public and so on. Um, I kind of wanted to ask the the direct question of kind of why, or I guess you don't believe this, but what what's what's to prevent you know the one platform to rule them all suddenly making all of us obsolete? Um, uh, whether it's I don't know some Databricks type platform or or SageMaker or something like this, is it the the complexity of the use cases is it the fact that no one knows what the end the end state is at the moment so have you used SageMaker? <laughs> I'm, I'm just joking i'm just well i'm not half a joke right um but seven perhaps you can start and yeah yeah no i mean you know like the, the space of machine learning is huge and i mean if, if you look at cloud computing right like is, is there one platform that rules everyone sure like you know like there's one company that has sort of like significant market share but then there are many other healthy businesses as well and it's it's very likely that we'll come across sort of like you know let's say three years from now five years from now we'll be at a spot where there are maybe sort of like you know two big players and then there are like many other uh, companies as well building sort of like you know really successful businesses even in the data platform space i mean of course you know like there's snowflake and there's databricks and then there are like many other companies which are you know uh part of the modern data stack the modern data movement as well and uh, many of those will build flourishing businesses uh too so so from that point of view i think the most interesting and exciting thing for me personally and the reason why uh, i started this company uh, was that uh, people are still figuring out what works, what doesn't work. That's really exciting. Uh, in, in many ways, uh, the rules are being written as we speak. The patterns are being established. Uh, and it's it's really interesting, you know, uh, as sort of like uh, budding open source projects uh, to be together on this exploration. I think that's, that's the most interesting part. Hopefully, uh, five years down the road, we can look back and we can sort of like, you know, be confident that there was some positive contribution uh, that we uh, made to the overall uh, velocity of machine learning adoption by and large. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. And to, to build on that, I think a, a short bit of history may, may be insightful. I'm not certain, but if we, I think we can all agree that the Pi data stack, and by that, I mean, your NumPyers, um, SciPyers, IPython, Jupyter, Matplotlib, all of these things have have started to really dominate the space in, in a very serious way. So much so that they're foundational and canonical now for a lot of the work we're talking about. So let's think about how they emerged. Um, and they weren't built by big companies. They weren't built by computer scientists. They weren't built by software engineers. Um, they were built by people for the most part, working in academic research or in jobs where they needed... I mean, Wes McKinney built, like, Pandas Read CSV because he really needed it and was sick of hand-rolling stuff, right? Um, at the same time, John Hunter was working on Matplotlib for 
similar reasons. Fernando Perez built the IPython kernel when, when, when he was working in, 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 in basic science, right? On top of that, there were communal network effects. And we're actually now talking about something that is almost, these open source communities are generative communities that are almost antithetical to the type of corporate incentive systems that we're discussing when talking about um, the, the building of these big platforms. I'm not actually saying one's, one's better than the other. They have a lot of different affordances and a lot of different uh, downstream results. But what we have here is a, a recent um, and very relevant, incredible example of how open source can serve the needs of actual practitioners because it's built by those communities and they're meeting in person to figure out how to interoperate them. So I'll give the example. Um, there are lots of kind of communal network effects there, but um, early on, Wes McKinney um, considered John Hunter, who was working on Matplotlib, a, a mentor, and he would visit him to figure out how to get Pandas and Matplotlib interoperating together, right? Um, so I think considering that, that narrative in terms of this space, the ability of open source to, I think, um, serve, serve the needs of users and a community cannot be dismissed. Now, there's a slight, I think, um, addendum to that, which is we can think about, I've been talking about community-backed open source and not company-backed open source, which we may need a different term for. Um, all we need to do to think about that is look at the, the the raging success of PyTorch these days, right? Which is not a community effort in the way I've just described. It's company-backed but yet it's been able to serve the needs of, of users because of how they've prioritized um, community-led uh, development as well. Um, since, since we're talking about the kind of the, the, the way things are going somehow, I, I wouldn't necessarily ask you to, to gaze into the crystal ball, but I, I am curious um, what kinds of things you're looking at or watching to see to be able to judge in what direction things are going, if that makes sense. There's a slightly different version of the question. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I think this is something that in the end is eminently um, not scalable at, at these stages. I think we need to speak with as many data scientists as possible, um, perform some sort of padded recognition, rank order what, what seems to be as important as possible, check our biases. Um, I'm very interested in all honesty, in not only speaking to, you know, I spend a lot of time speaking with Metaflow users. Um, I want to find more people who've um, considered Metaflow and decided not to adopt it um, to, to figure out how, how we can service them. Um, I do think also checking some form of network effects in terms of once, let's say, not to mention any names, but once a, a big company in a particular vertical adopts Metaflow, for example, there may be several others in that vertical that follow, and it would be easy to overfit to that particular vertical. So always checking that and making sure um, that we're considering the needs of people across as wide a spectrum as, as possible. So I think at a high level, that answers your question, but maybe Savin can, can drill down into some specifics. Yeah, I think, you know, what, what's really important for us is that... Um, Whatever we are building, it, it addresses actual uh, problems that our end users are running into, and, and the best way to sort of like you know do that would be to uh, continuously engage with folks who are using our tools, who are not using our tools, and really sort of like you know understand that uh, at the end of the day, I don't think 
I mean, there is some science to it that, of course, you know, like the more uh, the number of people that you talk to, uh, the more information gain you have. Uh, but then by and large, uh, great product management is still sort of like a big art. And uh, of course, you know, like we, we make our own mistakes. Uh, we have our own sort of like, you know, big wins at times as well. And uh, the more we do it, uh, the hope is that that will sort of like continuously allow us to guide in the right direction and just build better and better product. Uh, we haven't sort of like relied on uh, at, up until this point any sort of like specific quantitative metrics because it's, it's really difficult to sort of like optimize for any of those. Uh, so it's it's mostly qualitative assessment um, uh, that we are sort of like seeking at this particular moment. Mm-hmm. So we usually end with a couple of uh, kind of quick fire questions. Uh, maybe maybe you could both both give a stab at them. Um, you can answer them or take them in whatever direction you feel uh, is appropriate. Um, the first one would be what would what would be a quick win that someone can add to make their productionization or or perhaps operize operize operationalization of models more robust? Uh, I think the quickest thing would be to sort of like, you know, really understand uh, what is the definition of productionization in your use case? Like maybe, you know, like you don't need a super strong SLA uh, for your model serving endpoint. Like uh, my favorite example is actually Netflix recommendations. A bulk of those Netflix recommendations uh, are pre-computed recommendations because those recommendations don't change minute over minute or even hour over hour. Uh, so really sort of like understanding what is the business context, what is the business use case that can simplify the problem uh, significantly. And I think that's that's the first step towards robustness. I, I like that. And I'll kind of mention something at the other end of the process, which is, I mean, this is downstream, right? But answering the question is, if I went on PTO for a week, would it keep, would it be reproducible? Could some, does it have a bus factor of more than me? Can someone else keep this? If I shut my laptop, will it keep going? I mean, if, if I can add to that, I think most ML projects don't even have a bus factor of one in the yeah. sense that if I shut my laptop and then if I sort of like open it back again, can I even re-execute the entire code again to get similar results? I think we still Sometimes sort of like I don't even it. have to shut my laptop. It just stops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, so I think, you know, many of those projects definitely, uh, they, they should sort of like think about reproducibility or rerunability as sort of like a core ingredient. Uh, because if, if you don't have that, then then you lose out on many of uh, sort of like, you know, significant advantages uh, that many other software engineering tools can even provide for free at that particular point, right? Like if things fail, can't even rerun it again to uh, get back to the same error. How are you even going to debug it and fix it and sort of like, you know, move on? So, and. All, I mean, I think a lot of, um, let's say, intermediate, middle funnel data scientists, sorry, I keep, I sometimes wear a marketing hat, apologies to anyone who's offended by being classified as a middle of funnel data scientist. But um, if, if, you, if, you're, if you're just starting getting going and trying to figure out what type of like software principles to, to think about, I'd, I'd definitely look into learning a bit about versioning, both um, versioning code, versioning models, versioning data. Um, refactoring code is is incredibly important um, as well. And then thinking about data testing and data validation um, and software testing, um, which is related to to those two. But if you kind of can get a handle around these three things, I think um, there's some Pareto law, right, where that that gets you like X X percent of the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And what would be one part of kind of putting models into production that you think needs to be given more attention by toolmakers in the MLOps space? Maybe that's just your roadmap. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, good, good question. I mean, I, I do see sort of like, you know, uh, like many tools in this space that are sort of like targeting different definitions of deriving value from machine learning. So if you look at like companies like OctoML on one end of the spectrum to sort of like, you know, all the way to BentoML to sort of like, you know, spin up an API endpoint. I think the big thing to really sort of like understand here is like, you know, when, when we are talking about, let's say the model hosting space, specifically, there is no one size fits all solution out there, right? Like the kind of SLAs, the kind of scale that you need to, let's say, host an endpoint that is servicing an internal application could be very different than, let's say, you want to sort of like build something that can take the onslaught of like, you know, uh, tens of thousands of QPS and can provide you, let's say, five nines of uptime. And having that distinction is really, really important. You can't sort of like, you know, just say that, hey, here's a model hosting solution and just roll with it as if, you know, it's sort of like a silver bullet uh, that can solve uh, all your pain points. Um, so I think over sort of like a longer period of time, my hope, my expectation is that uh, people will sort of like naturally understand this distinction. It's it's the same with databases, right? Like there's no one single database that can solve all your use cases. All of these databases come with different trade-offs and really understanding when you're choosing a tool, what trade-off are you making? Uh, that will go sort of like a long way uh, in being happy with the tool. Uh, what I see more often happening is that uh, people enthusiastically adopt a tool, not really understanding what are the scenarios for which that tool was never designed in the first place. And then when they uh, start using that tool for that particular scenario, uh, that's when disappointment <laughs> sets in. And that's never sort of like a good thing uh, for anybody. Part of what I'd like more of, and not as well, because it's part of Metaflow's unique value proposition, as far as I'm concerned, is people thinking more about um, storing and accessing uh, all artifacts from uh, the training of models and all parts of your machine learning workflows. Um, I actually, uh, one of the first times I encountered Savin was on a, on a podcast where the interviewer kind of spoke about it as like, um, you know, how you can take snapshots in video games, which you can return to. So having access to everything at any point in time and having them easily accessible. Um, I think the world of experiment tracking is wonderful and solves a lot of real concerns for data scientists. I do think they're downstream of other concerns that we're trying to solve as, as well. So having access to all, all artifacts, um, uh, in an easy to retrieve uh, manner is incredibly, incredibly important to me. Um, the other space, which is, um, I suppose, adjacent, um, but part of these workflows is, I mentioned, you know, um, PyTest and great expectations, but data validation m more generally and, and, and data testing. I'd love to see more movement in, 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 in that part of the space because it's so, it's so incredibly important and we're just, it's so nascent for the space as well. Yeah, I would, would agree with all of the above. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for both both for coming on uh, on all of our respective time zones. It's definitely uh, super fascinating for me, like to speak to other people like uh, knee deep in the in, in the same space. Um, so yeah, and and you know, I hope, wish you all the best for 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 the work that you're doing as well. Yeah, thank place. you. Thank yeah, you for having thanks us. for such a such a wonderful thoughtful conversation as well, Alex. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Pipeline Conversations. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us get seen by more people 
And of course, it's always nice to receive feedback. If you have suggestions for future guests, please send them over to podcast at zenml.io. Thanks. Until next time.